Welcome to the Quotivation Podcast. Together, we will unlock inspiration, one quote at a time. Your host is one of America's top emerging public speakers. He is a former semifinalist in the World Championship of Public Speaking and is an expert motivator. Please welcome Jody Powell. Hey everyone, the Quotivation Podcast is back for another exciting episode that is going to encourage, inspire, and motivate you to win your week. Now, throughout my life, I have heard it said that America is the melting pot of the world. When the clock struck midnight on January 1st, 2024, it was estimated by the U.S. Census that the population in the United States was 335,893,238 people. And in the world, a total of 8,019,876,189 people. Oh, if I only had a dollar for every person that walked the face of the earth. (laughs) But with so many people, so many over 335 million minds in our country, each person with a unique perspective, each person with their own personal story, each person with a rich and detailed culture and background, how can we not be a melting pot? The power of getting to know someone new and different with a different culture than our own, it shapes our minds and it expands our understanding. Every single one of us, we all have one thing in common, all 8 billion of us that are riding this crazy wave of life together. And that one thing is this, we can all learn from one another. We can all influence one another. We can all be better people to one another. I hope in this episode of the Quotivation Podcast, you can find something that sparks an idea for you to get out of your comfort zone. Meet that person in your life or in your world that is just a little different from you that comes from a different place, that has a different background, a different culture, and learn something from them. Nothing's going to help you win your week more than that. So let's get this episode started, and we will start this off as we do every episode by taking a shot, a shot of motivation. And this week, our shot of motivation is sponsored by Amy Real from Cross Country Mortgage. Now, Amy is the real deal in all things mortgage. She has been a dear friend for many, many years, a big fan of the Quotivation podcast. So if you're in need of anything mortgage-related, a first mortgage, a second mortgage, maybe you're interested in refinancing, maybe you need a mortgage on that investment property, give Amy a call today. Her phone number is 864-310-9337. That's 864-310-9337. And you can also email her at amy.real, R-E-I-H-L, at ccm.com. Because Amy Real, she's the real deal for all things mortgage. And when you talk to Amy, tell her you were quotivated to get your mortgage deal done. And Amy's NMLS number is 486-620. And as always, Amy, thank you for sponsoring A Shot of Motivation.
it's time for a shot of motivation where the vibes like taking a shot but the high is pure inspiration this is a quick powerful boost of motivation to fire up your spirit get ready for a rapid infusion of uplifting stories impactful quotes and game-changing ideas it's the swift potent dose you need to amp up your game and win your week it's a shot of motivation Once upon a time, a daughter complained to her father that her life was miserable and that she didn't know how she was going to make it. She was tired of fighting and struggling all the time. It just seemed as one problem was solved, another would soon follow. Her father was a chef, and he took her to the kitchen. And he filled three pots with water and placed each one on a high flame. And once the three pots began to boil, he placed potatoes in one pot, eggs in the second pot, and ground coffee beans in the third pot. He then let them sit and boil without saying a word to his daughter. The daughter moaned and impatiently waited, wondering what he was doing. And then after 20 minutes, he turned off the burners, and he took the potatoes out of the pot and placed them in a bowl. He pulled the eggs out of the pot and placed them in a second bowl. And then he ladled the coffee out of the pot and placed it in a cup. Turning to her, he asked, daughter, what do you see? Potatoes, eggs, and coffee, she said hastily. Look closer, he said. Touch the potatoes. She did, and she noted that they were soft. He then asked her to take an egg and break it, and after pulling off the shell, she observed the hard-boiled egg inside. And then finally, he asked her to take a sip of the coffee, and its rich aroma brought a smile to her face. Father, what does this mean, she asked. He then explained that the potatoes, the eggs, and the coffee beans had each faced the same adversity, the boiling water. However, each one reacted differently. The potato went in strong, and hard, and unrelenting. But in boiling water, it became soft, weak. The egg was fragile, with the thin outer shell protecting its liquid interior. Until it was put into the boiling water. Then the inside of the egg became hard. However, the ground coffee beans, they were unique. After they were exposed to the boiling water, they changed the water and created something new. Which one are you? He asked his daughter. When adversity knocks on your door, how do you respond? Are you a potato, an egg, or a coffee bean? We all face adversity in life. Sometimes the adversity is the same as was the case with the potato and the egg and the coffee beans, but sometimes the adversity is unique to us. Regardless of the adversity, the lesson here remains the same. Will the adversity change us or will we change the adversity?
The potato and the egg allowed the boiling water to influence their makeup, but the ground coffee beans changed the makeup of the adversity. Said another way, and many people have used this analogy, so I won't try to place the credit with the originator, but I still think it's a powerful illustration of what we're talking about. You can either be a thermometer or a thermostat. A thermometer will tell you what the temperature of the room is. A thermostat will not only tell you what the temperature of the room is, but it will change the temperature of the room to what you want it to be. So be a thermostat. Change the room. Don't allow the adversity to influence you. I've known many powerful people that have stayed in toxic situations or relationships so long that they are drained of their power. They change. They allow the environment to alter their makeup. Don't let this be you. Change the room. And if you can't change the room, <laughs> go find another room. But never allow the circumstances and the adversity that you face to change you, to rob you of your greatness, to devalue your self-confidence. Oh, sure, we can learn and grow from adversity, and we should. But adversity should never be the force that brings you down. So this week, when adversity comes, be the coffee grounds. Find a way to change the makeup of the adversity. I hope this helps you win your week. You're able to take a challenging and difficult situation and turn it into an opportunity and a win for you. And that's your shot of motivation for the week. Go be the thermostat that changes the temperature of the room. And this shot of motivation was sponsored by Amy Real, the real deal in all things mortgage. Amy is a thermostat. She will change the way that you think of the mortgage process by making it so much easier for you. So go visit her today. And thank you, Amy, for sponsoring this week's Shot of Motivation. This has been a Shot of Motivation from America's leading emerging speaker, Jody Powell. We hope it helps you win your week. All right, let's get to our special guest this week, Dr. Michael T. Benson is a professor of history and the president at Coastal Carolina University. He spent 2020 as a visiting professor at Johns Hopkins University in the Department of History of Science and Technology. His third book titled Daniel Court Gilman and the Birth of the American Research University was released in 2022 by Johns Hopkins University Press and was named one of the best higher education books in 2023 by Forbes magazine. Now, prior to his time at John Hopkins, Michael served as 13th president of Eastern Kentucky University, the 15th president of Southern Utah University, and the 14th president of Snow College, where he was appointed president at the age of 36, making him the youngest college president in the history of the Utah system of higher education. Michael began his, his career in public higher education at the University of Utah in 1995 and served as assistant to the president. Dr. Benson worked and studied abroad for nearly seven years in Italy, England, and Israel, and says this experience completely transformed his worldview and perspective. He earned his Bachelor of Arts cum laude 
from Brigham Young University in 1990 with a major in political science and double minors in English and history. He completed his doctorate in modern history from the University of Oxford, St. Anthony's College in 1995, a master's degree, cum laude, in 2011 from the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame in nonprofit administration, and in 2021, Dr. Benson completed a master's degree in liberal arts from John Hopkins University. He is the youngest of six kids, all of whom attended college thanks to the sacrifice of his parents, which has instilled in him the belief that education is the great tool for good and positive change in the world. Now, Dr. Benson is most proud of his wife and five children, and they reside in beautiful Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where he is thrilled to lead the Teal Nation of Coastal Carolina University. Please welcome to the Quotivation Podcast, Dr. Michael T. Benson. Mike, how are you, buddy? I am doing well. I, I wish I could point you out the window. You can see it's about 60 degrees and sunny, and uh, we are less than a week away from first pitch for baseball, so things are good on campus. Oh, things are fantastic on campus. It's a great time of year, certainly a great time to be at Myrtle Beach, and a great time to be in Conway at Coastal Carolina with baseball coming up. Football is just wrapped up with a big bowl win in Hawaii. So fantastic times there at Coastal Carolina. And we're excited to have you on the Cultivation Podcast. Mike, tell us a little bit about your background, your career, uh, some of the exciting things that you've done in your career, and some of the exciting things that are coming up at Coastal Carolina. Well, I have to start with uh, some of the things that you summarized in that very gracious introduction. Uh, youngest of six kids, and all of us were really expected uh, to go to college. We, we were also given the responsibility to figure out how to pay for it. So uh, didn't really come from a family of, of extraordinary means. We were comfortable, but no, I'd never been to Disneyland until I took my kids. Uh, we didn't have uh, a lot uh, of extravagances growing up, but there was a huge emphasis on music. My mother was a piano teacher uh, for 40 years. I played the piano. All my siblings play an instrument, uh, at least the piano, then everything on top of that. So I have a sister who's a violinist, one who's a cellist, one who's a flautist, uh, one sister who was the best uh, piano player in the family, um, and then my brother who plays the tuba. So <laughs> we had like the Von Benson family when we would uh, get together. It was uh, good fun, and I love music. I still play to this day. Um, you know, moved around quite a bit. You touched about on my, my time overseas, but I, I spent the majority of my kind of uh, one to 16 uh, years in Dallas, Texas, with short stints in Utah, and then also in Indiana. Um, finished high school in, in Utah, interestingly enough, at East High School, which was the uh, focus of the high school musical uh, movies. Uh, it was a fictitious, they were called the East, uh, East High Wildcats, but at the real high school, which was the staging of the film, uh, we were the Leopards. And um, from there, I had, a, I had an offer to run track at the University of Utah, I was a half miler and ran marathons when I was a lot younger. Um, but my parents insisted that I go to Brigham Young where everybody else had gone. So uh, my sister handed me my schedule my freshman year and I looked at it and I said, holy cow, chemistry, biology, English, composition. You know, where, where's the fun stuff, Meg? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, I realized then, Jody, that you know, college uh, is a time of exploration and fun, but it's also you got to you got to hunker down and work hard. And because so much of what you do in your performance um, shapes and helps influence what, what follows. So, you know, took two years off, did a church mission in Italy, 
I was in Rome for over a year, other places in Italy, uh, came back. Um, I sold my car and went to, uh, to do study abroad in Jerusalem. That was my first time in Israel. If you take all the trips to Israel and the time I spent there was about a year and a half. Um, and then after that, you know, I was so uh, fascinated with my overseas experience. I wanted to do, I knew Middle Eastern history, but not from a, an American perspective. I wanted to, to focus on, a, 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 at the time, the empire or, a, or a, a government that had been there longer than we had. And of course, that would have been England. So after World War I, they had responsibility for what was then uh, Palestine. And so I, I went to Oxford and it spent the academic uh, months at Oxford. And then each summer I was in, in back in Jerusalem. And uh, you, know, you touched on it, but it, nothing shapes your, your view, your appreciation for cultures and people and differences and religion and traditions like travel. And hmm. I love it. I, I get to go to Iceland here in a few weeks with uh, some members of our student body, the Wall Fellows. Um, and I can't wait. I went for the first time back in September and what an amazing country. Uh, wow. So I've got five continents that I've touched foot on. I still have to get to South America, Antarctica. Antarctica. So uh, we'll <laughs> see what I can get down there. But uh, no, I, I uh, with my kids uh, now and my wife, I have five children. The uh, two older ones are off doing uh, significant things. One's a TV reporter in Salt Lake City, Utah. The other at age 24 is covering the presidential election for a a big newspaper out in out in Salt Lake, wow. Sam, and he'll actually be here for the, the South Carolina primary here in about 10 days. Um, so, you know, I, apart from work that keeps me very busy, uh, time with family is really important to me. And I have kids that play soccer and dance and uh, travel soccer is a whole new commitment that I had never experienced until uh, the last few years. And whether we're in Florida or we're in Georgia or North Carolina, or Virginia, uh, that that you know those are times with my kids that they're they're fleeting because my junior in high school where my wife and I were talking the other night we've got one more year at home uh, with him and then who knows where he's going to go so um, that's a snapshot of, of who I am and I owe so much to my parents both of whom have passed on uh, but every day I try to live a life that they would be proud of because they give me every opportunity that they never imagined my mom never graduated college my dad uh, went to Stanford, and uh, while he was a student at Stanford, found his his skill was in sales. So he he sold cookware and china sets door to door. Wow! And uh, that was his business. He uh, he did that his entire life and career. And again, uh, to be able to do study abroad, to go to graduate school in England, uh, to I played basketball at BYU for a year. Uh, to have all these things that they never dreamed of really uh, has instilled in me a sense of uh, not only appreciation, but to provide similar opportunities for my own kids yeah. and pay it forward, as they say. Yeah. And, you know, with parents, it, it's always wanting to give your children more opportunities than you had. And, and yeah. so that's, that's really special. And, and studying abroad, let's touch on that a little bit. Tell me about some of the, what are some of the things that you noticed um, that were so vastly different than than our culture that that really stood out to you that really shaped your worldview and, and gave you an appreciation for how people are are different around the world. The first uh, time I went out of country, my mother was Canadian, so we used to go to Canada once in a while for family vacations. Nothing fancy, but we'd go we'd drive directly up from Salt Lake City all the way north through uh, Idaho and Montana. Uh, parts of Wyoming and get to southern Alberta where she was from so I'd had some 
out of country experience, but the first time going across the Atlantic Ocean was to Italy when I was 19 years old. And what I found with my colleagues, all of whom were American, um, too often they said uh, very critical things because Italians did way, things in a different sort of way than what we did in America. And I learned early on that you, you can't appreciate people and why they do things until you kind of put yourself in their situation. Um, and the fact that Italians shopped every morning for fresh food because their, their refrigerators were about this big. Wow. So it was all about the freshness of the market food that they had purchased that morning. Um, you know, the fact that they would take naps in the afternoon, I, I would love to adopt that. Sometimes. <laughs> uh, you know, and then at night, dinner was not just this, you know, take something out of the, the, the freezer and heat it up. It was these long three, four, five course meals where conversation was the, was the key and, mm. and talking and, and putting your phones down. Of course, this was the mid eighties. We didn't have phones back then, at least cellular phones. And the, the, the pace of life and enjoying um, just interacting with people, uh, enjoying nature. Um, now, we, we live in a beautiful country. We live in a beautiful part of the country here. Uh, but too often, we're so busy hopping in our car and commuting to wherever we're going that uh, I really came to appreciate, you know, walks and taking public transit and uh, just kind of having those moments when you're still and you're quiet and you appreciate the beauty around you. You know, then when I went to Israel, uh, I remember the first time I went uh, in 1989, they took us through Damascus Gate, which is probably the busiest of the seven gates around the old city. And I had just read a book by Thomas Friedman uh, called From Beirut to Jerusalem. And he talked about walking in the old city for the, his first time. Hmm. And you could, the, the sights and the smells and the sounds, it's almost like I can transport myself back because I, it was so profound. You heard Arabic, you heard Hebrew, you heard Spanish, French, Italian, German. Um, and I, it, it was completely, I never spent any time in the Middle East, uh, never been there before. And I was so taken with it. You know, the fact that you know, some old in America, Harvard founded in 1636, you know, big deal. Jerusalem has been built, destroyed, rebuilt like 25 different times. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we would go on these uh, archaeological trips and find what they call tells, which is a, the name for a, a place or a hill. Um, and there were some that were three, 4,000 years old. Wow. So it gave me a sense of the kind of the, the, the longitude, if you will, of time uh, that we're on the spectrum that, you know, our time here is, is only for a moment. And uh, what we do, like, you know, you talk about winning the week, you know, what is it that we're doing that makes a difference? Mm -hmm. because people billions of people have come and gone on this planet and it's not about fame it's not about a fortune it's about not about title or degrees it's about what did we do to make a difference in the lives of, of other people so that you know that was uh those are just a few examples and i had a chance to travel throughout jordan i went to egypt several times um i've had uh, the chance to travel by, in, as part of my job now so china uh, Australia, New Zealand, not never been to New Zealand, to go to Iceland, to go back to Europe uh, has really been, um, these have been some really profound experiences in my life and I'm so grateful for them. And how important is it for you as the president of the university for, uh, for your students to have those opportunities? I know, in fact, I think I saw on your, on the Instagram for Coastal Carolina just recently, there was a, there was a fair that was held uh, showing opportunities to 
to study abroad. So what what is it about that that is so important for kids um, in your university to have that experience? I am really grateful for the, the opportunities we're providing our students here. I wish we had the resources to do even more. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story from my prior school at Eastern Kentucky, where the majority, probably 90% of our students were from the state of Kentucky. So a little different from the makeup of our students here, where 60% are from out of state, uh, 40 from in-state. And we decided to do a uh, what we called spin the wheel for study abroad. So the first year we announced it, we did it in the student union. There were probably 10 students there. And we had two, we had two opportunities to study abroad and we drew names out of the 10 students who were there. So your chances are pretty good uh, if, if you were there and they spun the wheel and it landed on a country and that's where they were going. Wow. And it wasn't long. I think they were like two or three week trips at most a month. But um, the two students came back from their experience. So I remember one went to China and one went to South America. I can't recall where. And they came back almost with like tears in their eyes of they had never been outside the United States. They had never been on an airplane before. And to then have this experience of seeing halfway around the world and what it meant to them and how it ignited this, this passion for for travel. Now, some of them were students, not for means whatsoever. And, and um, so we decided to expand it. It eventually got to, we would do it inside of our, uh, one of our auditoriums that sat, probably seated uh, 350 people and it was packed. Mm -hmm. And we would do spin the wheel and students would come up. And I remember this one girl was going to Tahiti. Uh, she really hit the, the you know, gold mine there. <laughs> and she just jumped up and down. She was so excited. And I saw what it meant to students that, that if it weren't for that opportunity, they would never, ever have that chance. Yeah. And I, I've tried everywhere I've gone, Jody, to, to do whatever we can to provide you know, stipends or scholarships or uh, even a low-cost low loan or some other uh, means whereby these students can have that chance because it, it really it changed my life, and I know it can change their lives. Now, you know, the world's a complicated place right now. There are places you just can't go. I mean, sure. I, I, I don't think I could go back to the Middle East for the time being. Um, but uh, I really encourage anybody who's listening to this, go out and see the world. I, another quote I love is about, from Mark Twain about you can't sit in the corner and vegetate your whole life. You have to go out and see the world. And that's the thing that breaks down prejudices and, and biases and misconceptions and mis misperceptions is to, to get your boots on the ground and meet people and experience a different culture. And then, you know, the times I've been to China, I've eaten stuff I had never, I, in a million years, I wouldn't imagine eating, uh, but it, it's been so, so enjoyable. It, it's, it's so interesting. So to say, immerse yourself into the culture, yeah. allow yourself to, uh, to be the odd person out that's learning about everyone around you, as opposed to what happens typically, America being the melting pot, someone comes in that's not from South Carolina or Kentucky or Utah, they're having to learn our culture, just the opportunity to just immerse yourself. I think that would lead to such a greater chance and a greater perspective of having an impact on other people. You mentioned that earlier. How do you win the week in a way that, that it's not about you know, it's not about chasing the paycheck. It's not about chasing the career goals. It's about the impact that you have on other people and, and what they're going to remember you for. 
And I, it, it seems that having the opportunity to travel abroad would give you a better perspective and a better opportunity to have that impact on others. As you mentioned, they came back and there were tears in their eyes and they had this, uh, they, I'm sure they just gave this glowing testimony of, of what they've experienced in, in their travels and, and which leads to the growth of the program. And so just being able to, to experience those cultures, I would imagine would lead to such a powerful way of impacting others. I was, I was just going to add my, my two older children have both also served uh, church missions. One went to Cambodia, um, Emma, and she speaks Khmer still. She's kept it up. I told her, Emma, you've, you've mastered this very difficult language and you've got to take advantage of, of the, the opportunity to serve other people. So, you know, short story, you know, the, the Pol Pot and the, and the revolution that happened in Cambodia where uh, tens of thousands of people were, were massacred and they just don't talk about it. Um, and uh, the Khmer Rouge is the, is the name of the regime. And Emma had the chance when they were doing oral histories of survivors, many of whom have died off, but a few are still there, but they would never talk about it, nor would they record it because it was so painful. Hmm. But they recorded a few people speaking about it and created these oral histories and Emma's job was to translate it from the, the Kamai into English. Wow. Um, and I said, Emma, you, you're helping preserve history, uh, a history that's very difficult for these people to talk about because they lost, lost friends and loved ones. And it was just this kind of wrenching experience. So you, know, you never know when those experiences, I still speak Italian. My son speaks Spanish. He's marrying a young woman whose family is from Mexico. They speak Spanish to each other. So, uh, you know, it's one thing we don't do very well, Jody, I think is language instruction uh, in schools, either public or private. And when students come to college, you know, they, they may take a French class because they did it in high school or German or something else. Uh, I've tried to keep up my Italian. I did try Arabic and Hebrew and failed miserably at both languages. So I know my limitations. <laughs> <laughs> well, just looking at your resume and the things that you've accomplished in your career, your limitations are very few. <laughs> let's let's talk about uh, Daniel Coit Gilman. Um, of course, one of the founders and the first president of Johns Hopkins University um, was really an innovator of the modern American research university. And you wrote your book about him and, and, and it was named one of the best higher education books by Forbes magazine. So tell us what led you to write this book. Why are you so passionate about this? And, and what is it about uh, uh, the higher education and universities being so research focused that drives you? Yeah, well, here's the book. Thank you for that, uh, that plug there. There's Daniel Coy Yeoman. He had this kind of mutton chop beer that he developed after his undergraduate years at Yale. He graduated at Yale in 1852. And I always like to start with this, that at, at two classes at Yale, 1852 and 1853, they produced the first three presidents of three of our great universities in America. Wow. Gilman at Hopkins, his classmate, uh, Andrew, uh, beg your pardon, uh, William Preston Johnston, whose father was Albert Preston Johnston, Albert Sidney Johnston, who was killed uh, at the Battle of Shiloh. Um, his son went on to be the first president of, uh, not the first president, but he was at LSU before he got recruited to Tulane, first president of Tulane. And then the, the other classmate in 1950, excuse me, 1853, um, Andrew Dixon White, who became the first president of Cornell. So Johns Hopkins, Tulane, Cornell, remarkable schools, all led, helmed by these gentlemen who all came out of Yale in the 1850s. 
you know, what got me on the subject, short, long story, very, very short. Uh, I was on the Hopkins campus. I'd never been there before. And I had read his inaugural address that he gave on February the 22nd, 1876. And the reason I read it, I had already given two inaugural addresses. You talked about the presidencies I've had. Uh, so I had given one at Snow. I had given one at Southern Utah. As I prepared my one at, at, at Eastern Kentucky, I decided to go back and read what some famous presidents from other generations had written. And I stumbled upon his, which this was given in the day where uh, oratory and rhetoric was, was really valued as a, uh, not only of an art form, but a tremendous skill. So one could get up and, you know, think of, you know, William Jennings Bryan's or, or think about Andrew Link, uh, Abraham Lincoln and his debates with, uh, with Douglas. Um, and I went back and read the speech that probably lasted, I would say 90 minutes because it's a good 30 pages single type. And it is one of the most profound kind of visions for what he saw uh, ahead in terms of what he wanted Johns Hopkins to accomplish. Hmm. The amazing thing about the speech, Jody, is that when Hopkins had its 125th anniversary in 2001, they asked uh, a woman named Mame Warren to be the editor of this kind of big coffee table book. And through this book, she goes through 12 aspirational goals that Gilman came up with for Hopkins. And lo and behold, they accomplished over 125 years, all 12 of them. Wow. And when you consider the context, you know, a brand new school, no buildings to speak of in kind of gritty downtown Baltimore. And he had the temerity, the audacity to get up there behind this lectern and say, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. And I was so moved by that, that when I was on campus in 2017, I asked um, um, a, the person in, the, in a gift shop, uh, I said, could I please get a single volume biography of uh, Daniel Court Gilman? And she kind of looked at me with this quizzical look and said, um, we don't have one. I don't think anyone's ever done it. And I, I could not believe it. <laughs> so I was with a friend of mine, Nick Perlick. We both worked at, at Eastern Kentucky. And I said, Nick, uh, on, the, on the way back to our hotel, and I said, this may sound like the dumbest idea ever, but I'm going to put together a proposal and give this man his, his fair shake, his, his due. Well, it certainly received uh, acclaim from, from outside sources, Forbes magazine, name it, one of the best higher education books as well. Um, Mike, if you wanted to take one thing from your experience of writing that book that has really inspired you today in your role at Coastal Carolina, what would that be? Well, it, we, you and I didn't talk about this beforehand, Jody, so I don't think, I don't want people to think it was planned but you know, your motto of winning the week, um, I literally developed, I, I, I created tranches, if you will, of, of the project. So after every day I had three by five cards, I would record how many words I wrote that day. Hmm. And then at the end of the week, I would tally it up. And that's how I kept track of, not that I was so focused on words, but I knew word production translated into, you know, the books coming together. So if I learned anything, it was, well, you got to start somewhere. I mean, on that first day when I looked at the blank screen, I thought, okay, here we go. You know, I knew what I wanted to write. I knew uh, that it only gets started if I start typing. And um, if you have a project, if you have something, you know, a goal you want to accomplish, think of, yes, the end objective, but break it into pieces and say, I got to get to this point. Once I get there, it's going to be easier to get to the next point. You know, there may be setbacks, but 
doing that really reinforced that uh, you got to take it in, in, in steps. And uh, it, it was, it, my father always used to say the greatest attribute you can develop is the ability to discipline yourself to work hard. Mm. And uh, there are so many distractions today and that I was able to literally go into a small office and shut the door. It was about a quarter of the size of what I've got now at Coastal. It was literally like a little uh, janitor's closet almost. And uh, I would go in there, shut the door and just hunker down. And uh, uh, the ability just to get after it, I think is really important. And I, I learned that I could do it and I enjoyed doing it. That's, that's inspiring. And it is about, you know, I talk about winning the week and uh, that starts with winning the moment. You got to win the moment. You got to win, string together a couple of wins in your moment, uh, in your moments so that you can win your week. And, and um, you know, that's, that's exactly what it sounds like you did there writing the book. Mike, let's d- dive into your quote. Um, I'm really excited about this quote. I, I know there's a lot behind it, a lot of stories, a, a lot of personal stories for you. Uh, but why don't you tell us what is the quote, who said it, and how this quote is really inspiring to you? The quote is from a hero of mine whose name was George Washington Carver, who um, he was born, I believe, in Missouri, but as a child was kidnapped. Uh, his parents, uh, his birth parents, uh, birth mother were slaves in Missouri. Um, uh, actually, Missouri was not a slave state at the time. He was born in Kentucky, excuse me. And then they, uh, the people that kidnapped him took him to Missouri. The owners of the slaves, his parents, sent someone to go find him. And they found him. And uh, it, the parents had been killed. And he was um, raised by this gentleman who named him George Washington Carver. Um, it was a German family. And uh, I was so fascinated by his life because he came from nothing. I mean, beyond nothing and was instilled by this family that helped to raise him how important education was. So he was the first African-American in, in so many ways to, to go to the school where he was. I believe it was either in Kansas or Missouri, the first to kind of save money and go to Iowa State where he got his master's degree in science in 1896, the first black faculty member in the history of Iowa State University. He was an expert in agronomy. He was a botanist, an agronomist, he, uh, some call, call him the father of the peanut because he was able to develop like 30 different uses of peanuts, particularly for Southern planters who had uh, decimated their crop uh, by overplanting or overusing it with cotton. And so it was a, it was a way to, in, in many ways, reinvigorate the soil. Uh, the family tied to him is through my grandfather. And my grandfather, uh, also went to Iowa State. He followed George Washington Carver by about 31 years. Uh, my grandfather did a master's in agricultural economics, the first in his family to go to college, the first oldest of 11 kids, Wow. the small little dairy farm in southeastern Idaho. And um, I was, I've been so moved by George Washington Carver's life and career that I, it sounds kind of macabre maybe, but I love to read obituaries and I love to go to grave sites. Number one, when you read an obituary, you see what a person did with his or her life and what was important, not only to him, because maybe him or her, they, they wrote it themselves or the family. What did they want that person to be remembered by? Mm-hmm. And then I like to go see where their final resting spot is. So at Tuskegee University in Tuskegee, Alabama, there's a beautiful tree next to the administration building, and there are two grave sites right next to each other. One is Booker T. Washington. Um, 
if not the founder of Tuskegee University, then one, one, I think one of the first, the, the first president. And right next to him is his friend, George Washington Carver. And, um, you know, the, the grave site reads something to the fact that he could have done a lot more with his life, but he recognized that his, his passion was, was teaching young people and education. And so the quote uh, is one of many that I love uh, from, from, uh, from Carver. Another one before I say this one is, he once said that education was the, the key to unlock the golden door of freedom, mm -hmm. um, which I think is just so beautiful and in terms of the metaphor. But this is the quote I wanted to use with you. And I, I, I told you off air that I so appreciate the use of quotes because I use them all the time because a lot smarter than people than you and I have said more profound things than, than we could ever say. <laughs> That's exactly And right. he said this, he said, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in your life, you will have been all of these. And what that means to me is um, all of us are on this path of life. You know, you go back to the Lion King is the circle of life. You know, at certain points in our life, we're, we're young, uh, we're aged, uh, we're striving, uh, we're weak and we're strong. And how you treat other people at those various points is everything that it says everything about you that needs to be said. And uh, his point is how far you go in life is, is really how you treat other people. And I think it, why it means so much to me and in our society today where uh, it seems like our discourse has become so much more divisive and shrill and people videotape themselves uh, doing terrible things to other people um, to try and get, you know, clicks and views. I'm just so disappointed that they haven't maybe read this quote, because if you read this quote, it reinforces that, you know, you've got to treat each other uh, with, with the love and the respect that you want to be treated with. And um, that's really what it comes down to. I'm grateful that my parents, you know, inculcated in me and, and I have a religious faith that really stresses that. Uh, in regards to what you believe, I think at day's end, it's how we treat each other. And uh, that's why I love it. I use it. I use this quote a lot and it means a great deal to me. And it's, it, it covers the, the full gamut. It, it covers everyone in their, at any stage in their life. Um, because as you said, we've all been weak. We've all been strong. We're all, some of us more than others are going to be aged at some point in life. Uh, we've been young. Um, and you, you have uh, the incredible responsibility of being a leader of the young, uh, of, of those young minds that are going to be the future of, of our country. And, and so to instill into someone um, at, at that young of an age to say how you treat other people, wherever they are in their, whatever their stage of life they're in, whatever, whatever they're going through in, in their daily walk is ultimately how you define your character. It's how you define who you want to be, who you are as a person, what your morals are, what your moral compass is. And to be able to distill that, to, to show that to someone in, in this way is powerful. So as we think about uh, your students, as we think about your faculty, as we think about uh, listeners to this podcast who may be struggling as they're going through their week, as they're, as they're working through maybe a job that they're just not thrilled about, how do we take this quote and break it down in a way that we can say, here's how you can win your week. Use mm -hmm. this quote to do this. 
and it's going to allow you to win your week? Well, I think uh, the first, it's a very good question and a very kind of profound one. There's, there's much to, as they say, unpack. And that is um, a, a sense of self-awareness. You have to realize where you are in life and then reflect back on where you were maybe in another stage and how you appreciated being treated by somebody who could have gone one of several different directions in how they encountered you. I'll give you a good example. When I was an undergraduate at Brigham Young, uh, the department chair was a guy by the name of Stan Taylor. And Stan was a tenure professor. He was the department chair. Uh, I had gone to the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, which was kind of my dream school. Uh, I didn't get in, so I got, had the chance to go to Oxford and you know things work out for reasons, but I was really wanted to focus on the foreign service. That's what I decided I wanted to do after my study abroad experiences. You know, I wanted to go see the world and, and live different places. Things worked out differently, but Every time I went by and saw uh, Stan Jody, it didn't matter where he was in his day or what he had on his desk. He would, I'd knock on the door, he'd open the door, he would turn his chair from away from his computer, you know, facing the, the other chair. And we would sit there and he would talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. And now I look back, I think, man, I, I, I ate up so much of his time and that wasn't very considerate of me. But I just thought that's how, faculty members like Stan treated students. So I gave a welcome back talk um, at my previous school. And I said, I want all of you to be like Stan. And I told the story of Stan Taylor that, um, you know, you never know where you are in a day that that interaction with the student who maybe is just having a terrible day, that you're that moment of, you know, how you doing? You know, how are things going? And you give him a smile, you give him a pat on the back. And that's what Stan did for me. And um, you, you never know if you're going to be that answer to a, a, a prayer or an answer to a question that somebody has that, you know, a student may be at the rope's end. And, you know, we see it a lot more these days with students in terms of what they've gone through and, and mental health issues. And one gesture of kindness or maybe even a, a mean word can tip them one way or the other. And I really try it in a very meaningful, I hope, sort of way in a very pronounced sort of way um, to be that force for good uh, when I consider that others have done that for me. And I look back, my very first book, Stan wrote the forward, and that means a great deal to me. He died last year. I was sad I couldn't go to his funeral because uh, he meant a great deal to me. And uh, I wrote him a letter probably 10 years ago and told him that. And uh, he responded. And that's one of those letters I treasure um, because I, you know, my letter to him was very heartfelt and his response uh, was the same thing. And so uh, I really hope people will, you know, they, they think about this quote and how to win the week, win the day, win the moment, is that be that force for good in that moment, yeah. because you never know uh, what direction that person that you're interacting with, where they're headed, and you can be either for good or for ill. Yeah. And that's, in, that's a wonderful story about Stan. And to, um, I, I'm sure that letter, when it was received, um, was probably more precious and more meaningful to him than any accolade, any award, any degree that he had ever earned, because those things, those things fall away. It's how you treat people. It's how you make people feel that last. Um, it's funny when, it, when I started in my career, I had a very wise, older, aged, elderly grandmother figure um, in, in, in my uh, office and you know right out of college I was 
gung ho. I was going to do something big. I wanted to be a success. And I told her, like, I, I got to get out of this little office. I got to move on to the big companies. I got to do something big. I want to be a success. Mm-hmm. And she'd laugh and she'd say, well, you probably will. And, and so the day came that I did leave and, and she pulled me aside and she said, listen, you can go and you can work on projects and you can do, you can create new technologies and you can improve processes, but understand something that's not success because someone's going to come along and they're going to create better technology. Mm-hmm. They're going to come along and they're going to create a better process. It's not lasting. It's how you treat people. It's mm-hmm. how you make people feel. It's what people think and feel about you as you're walking away. And I'll never forget when she said that. At the time, I just kind of laughed and said, oh, okay, thanks. Love you. I'll, 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 I'll see you soon. We'll stay in touch. Um, unfortunately, we didn't. And I was too busy chasing that what I thought was success mm-hmm. and um, didn't have the opportunity as, as you did with Stan to, to tell her that, yeah, you know, I, I recognize in the, in these, as you get older, um, the opportunity to have a difference, to make an impact on someone is really where success lies. Mm-hmm. And, and this quote uh, illustrates that so well. So as we think about our society, we've talked a little bit about um, some of the things that are, that are dividing us as a country is dividing us in the world. And, and we read this quote, uh, the, it seems so, so contrary, so contradictory to one another in terms of what's going on in the world and what this quote is trying to instill. How do we get here? How do we get to what George Washington Carver was saying? What are the things we need to do to invoke change in the world, change in our culture, so that we can really be compassionate with the aged and sympathetic with the striving and tolerant and, 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 or in the weak and the strong, and, and we can be tender with the young. How do we get there, Mike? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker on people's cars. Uh, think globally, act locally. Mm. And uh, what I like to focus on uh, is on the things I can control. I mean, we have a rule in our family with our kids. It's the 1090. Life is 10% what happens and 90% how you react. And that, uh, you know, Viktor Frankl, another one of my heroes, you know, said that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our freedom and our ability to decide how we react. Mm. And I think that's so important because um, we can't control everything. We can't really direct how the national discussion goes or the narrative or the discourse that happens in our camp, in our, in our country, or, or even maybe smaller. But in our own little kind of realm of influence, whether it's with the people we work with, whether it's the students that I have responsibility for at the university, whether it's with my own family, you know, am I doing things that are making a difference with that group? You know, am I acting locally while I'm thinking about the big picture? So, um, you know, it was uh, Edmund Burke, the only way for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Mm. And sometimes you can say, oh, there's nothing else I can do to change. Yes, you can, you can in the aggregate, all those small acts of kindness, I think can make a difference. And, uh, you know, as you were talking about your friend and your mentor, I thought about Maya Angelou and her statement that uh, people forget what you say, they'll forget what they hear, but they'll never forget the way you made them feel. Right. And um, if you can make a difference by making somebody feel better about themselves, that I believe is, is, uh, is more powerful than anything. 
it, it's really it, it speaks to another quote from George Washington Carver that that he said, "Start where you are with what you have, make something of it, never be satisfied." That was my mom's quote that she would always use with us. Was it? Really? But you know, that as your kids growing up, you know, Johnny got a new bike. You know, what was me? He's got new shoes, and she said, "Michael, start where you are with what you have." Do your best and never be satisfied. And that that was that was our family motto. I'm so glad you brought that one up. <laughs> that, that would have been probably one B uh, right. behind this other one. But uh, yeah, it's all about kind of worrying about yourself, doing the best with what you got. I love to hear coaches when they're interviewed after you know, win or loss that, you know, I love my team. You know, we played our best. You know, I don't worry about the NIL that nobody has or the recruits they picked up. This is who we've got. And this is what we're going to do the best with what we have. He is the president of Coastal Carolina University, an acclaimed author and a friend of the Quotivation podcast, Dr. Michael Benson. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Quotivation podcast. It has been an honor and a pleasure, sir. The only thing I'm going to ask for, Jody, may I get one of those sweatshirts? I want one of those hoodies. <laughs> you got it. It's on its way. <laughs> hey, what a pleasure to be with you. I want to thank you for what you do. Uh, quotations are are something I've always, I've got Bartlett's book of fame, famous quotations on my shelf that was passed down to my, my uh, father from his father. And, uh, you know, today, now all you have to do is do a Google search, but quote, quotations from people who have done wonderful things and gone through experiences uh, maybe that you and I will never have uh, really are an unending source of motivation and inspiration for me. So thank you for what you do. Well, Mike, thank you. Thank you for being on the Quotivation Podcast. Thank you for being a leader of young minds, young minds that are going to be leaders of our country, leaders of our businesses, leaders in science and technology and education in the medical field. Uh, such a great responsibility, and I really appreciate that you've taken that on. Uh, Dr. Michael T. Benson, professor and president of Coastal Carolina University. If you haven't been there in beautiful Conway, South Carolina, go visit the campus. It is absolutely gorgeous. And it's just outside of Myrtle Beach. So, you know, swing on by. Take a trip to the beach. It's not a bad place to be. But before you do that, why don't you stick around because it's time for some dessert. It's time for the last slice of cheesecake. How about some dessert before you go? There isn't anything that can't be solved over a slice of cheesecake. So before we wrap things up, sit back, relax, and enjoy the last slice of cheesecake. What a wonderful conversation with Dr. Michael T. Benson, president of Coastal Carolina. Uh, thank you, Mike, for what you do there. And your leadership. And kudos to you for this quote from George Washington Carver. Again, the quote is, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and strong. Because someday in your life, you will have been all of these. So powerful and so true. I feel like I've been all of these in a week, let alone at some point in my life, trying to win my week. There are times that I felt young and energetic. There are times, a lot of times, that I felt aged. I love that word. 
I'm going to start using that instead of old. I feel aged. But there are times that I've been striving, striving to be better, striving to learn more, striving to do my very best. And though I don't always hit it, I don't always make it there. I don't always learn what I need to learn. I don't always know what I need to know. I'm striving and I'm growing and I'm moving in the right direction. And sometimes we have to be, as the quote says, sympathetic with those that are striving to become more than what they are today. I've certainly felt weak, certainly felt weak. Weak when I strive and I don't make it. I strive to learn and I, and I fail to, to recognize some of the things that maybe I should have known. That makes me feel weak. And there are times we feel strong, right? Strong because maybe some of the decisions we're making are working out. We're having success. We're finding the right path. And, and sometimes it's interesting. We didn't talk a lot about this, but, but it's interesting that the quote says, tolerant of the weak and strong. I understand tolerant of the weak, because sometimes if, if you're not on your game, if you're not bringing your A game, if you're not doing all of the things you need to do, it can be frustrating for your teammates. It can be frustrating working with someone who just is off, right? Uh, and, and maybe we're having to pick up the slack of their work. And that can be frustrating. That can be challenging. But we have to be tolerant of that, because at some point, that's going to be us. But we also have to be tolerant of the strong, of those people that are hitting on all cylinders. Maybe they're getting a little bit of a big head. Maybe they're starting to think, hey, I am, uh, I'm a lot better than, uh, than I really am. Or, or maybe I've arrived. And, and we certainly have to be tolerant and, and recognize how to work with individuals like that. Because there are people around us that feel that way. Tolerant of the weak and the strong. Because someday you're going to realize that at some point you've been all of these. Mike talked about a sense of self-awareness to to not only know where you are on this spectrum. Do do you feel young and energetic? Do you feel aged uh, as if you you don't have the energy to to make it through? Uh, Do you feel weak, strong? Uh, do, Do you feel like you're striving, like you're not quite there, but, but you're getting there and you're learning, uh, recognizing where you are. But more importantly, I think, remembering how it felt when a person poured into you at, at, at certain points in your, t- in your life, because you can recognize where other people are and you can show empathy and you can reach out to someone and say, hey, you know what? I've been there. I know how you feel. I was there last week. Here's what I did. Pour into them, help them. Bring them along. Pour into them in a way that not only makes them better, but it makes you better. This is especially important in leadership. It's about empathy. It's it's not about recognizing just that someone is, is not performing up to standards. It's understanding why, understanding how you can assist that person. Simon Sinek tells this story. I love the story of a young barista in a very nice hotel that he was staying in. The young man's name's Noah. And, and Sinek tells the story that he, that he goes for a coffee one afternoon and has this wonderful interaction with Noah. He is smart. He is on top of it. He knows how to make the drink. He, he's having conversations. He, he makes an incredible, uh, incredible drink and, and, and just the right ingredients, everything so well done and done with such passion and joy. And of course, Sinek says, being the person that I am, I have to ask questions what is it about this job that, that you love? 
What do you love about being a barista at this hotel? And Noah goes on to tell the story that, well, uh, I love being a barista here because of the managers, the management here, not just my manager, but any manager will walk by and say, hey, how are you doing? Everything okay? Do you have everything you need? Can I help you with anything? And they mean it. And it makes Noah want to do better, wants him to perform well. It wants him to bring his very best. Now, Noah shared with Simon Sinek that I'm also a barista at another hotel just down the street. And at that hotel, I just put my head down. I make the drinks and I try not to make a mistake. So why not? What, what, what's different? So well, at that hotel, the management there does everything they can do to find and catch you doing something wrong. And it's not in a way that is helpful. Now, this is the same young man, same person, same employee, two different cultures, two different leadership styles. In one place where they're empathetic and they're helpful and they're a team, he shines. At the other place where they are, uh, they're, they're very much like a dictatorship scare leadership, fear, leadership out of fear. He doesn't perform well. He puts his head down. He collects his paycheck and he goes home. You have to recognize where other people are on the spectrum that's in this quote so that you can empathize, so that you can understand because at some point, as George Washington Carver said, someday in your life, you will have been all of these. Mike also talked about the 1090 rule that he implements in his own home. Life is 10% of what happens and 90% of how you react. We can't control everything. We can't influence change in the world on a global scale just by ourselves, but we can think globally and act locally. We can have the influence over the things that, that make a difference in the, realm, in, in the realm that I control, in the realm that I'm a part of. Uh, I can have influence locally with the people that I interact with, maybe the people I lead, maybe the people I work with, maybe the people I work for. Having a realm of influence to the people you work for? Yes. Think about Noah. Noah's actions, the way he responds to that powerful leadership model of empathetic leadership has an influence as to whether or not that leadership style works. Think globally, act locally. Because listen, we can't change the world with one act. But one act can change the world. That's all the time we have for the Quotivation Podcast. I hope you have found something in this wonderful quote from George Washington Carver that's going to help you win your week to recognize where you are on this spectrum of the young or the aged, the striving, the weak, the strong, recognizing that we'll probably experience all of those in the, in the week upcoming. But know where you are and know where those around you are so that you can show empathy, so that you can show compassion, so that you can pour into them and learn from them as you move forward. I want to thank Amy Real for sponsoring our Shot of Motivation, as she does always. Thank you, Amy. And thank you to Dr. Michael T. Benson for being on the Quotivation Podcast, the president of Coastal Carolina University. But most of all, thank you for listening.
Until next time, stay quotivated. You have been listening to the Quotivation Podcast, hosted by America's leading emerging speaker, Jody Powell. If you would like to book Jody to speak at your company, conference, or next event, visit www.jodypowellspeaks.com. You can also email him at Jody, that's J-O-D-Y, at jodypowellspeaks.com. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Quotivation Podcast. And remember, stay quotivated.